Human beings, uh, quite understandably, have a craving for miracle cures. Right? The Catholics have lords or lordes, and they have other shrines. Protestants have and have had numerous alleged faith healers. I remember when I was a young Christian, I began to become skeptical of these various supernatural, miraculous claims that were being made by other Christians around me. I think I told this story in my Sunday school class. I was wrestling at the time with these broader issues that would eventually lead me to the Reformed faith. And toward the end of this process, a man of some notoriety, still in the public eye in in these circles, was invited to speak at a conference sponsored by the churches that were in our circle of churches. It was a big event. It was hosted, uh, held at the Ulster County Performing Arts Center in Kingston. This would have been in the late 80s sometime. So I don't know how many people that place holds, but it was full. 1,500 people, 2,000 people, I'm not sure. The speaker had supposedly cured people of AIDS and even raise someone from the dead in Africa. It's always Africa with this stuff. (laughs) Never Brooklyn. (laughs) So I went with a good deal of interest because the people who told me about it and were promoting it were not crazy people. They were sane people. But I went with a healthy dose of skepticism. And I left, for reasons I won't detail here, I left convinced, I won't say the guy was a fraud, but I was convinced he didn't have the gifts that they claimed he had. And I've never changed my mind about that. Now, of course, I believe that God can, and in fact does, do miracles. But he can do them without all of our inflated claims. At the time, I became convinced that many of these well-intentioned but inflated miracle claims were in fact violations of the third commandment, And the ninth commandment, right? They take God's name in vain and they bear false witness. God does not need us to scratch out a semi-plausible scenario under which perhaps some sort of miracle occurred. So we have a text today from John 5. And again, we have an alleged source of miracle cures. There's this pool. It's in Jerusalem. And the blind and the lame and the invalid used to gather there. And any good Bible with notes will tell you that there's a reading from some manuscripts that says, From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one in to the pool after the waters were stirred up, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. But again, that material right there is not in the original text. It probably reflects the belief, though, of many people. It's a piece of folk religion. It's an ancient conviction that this pool is some kind of healing shrine. And this pool, you know, it's interesting, this pool has been unearthed. It's the sheep pool near the temple, so we know about where it would be. It's been unearthed by archaeologists. We found the pool, the archaeologists did, and they found the five colonnades mentioned in the text. 
And we know now that the pool was fed by intermittent springs, probably with a reddish, mineral-rich water as well. So the pool waters would bubble up and they would move once in a while. And the people thought that meant that the waters were being stirred up by an angel. And the waters have healing powers. People are gullible. This is, I think, a piece of local superstition. You may disagree. But at the very least, as we shall see, to Jesus, the pool is irrelevant. He ascribes no healing power to it in this text. You know why? Because he himself is the shrine, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the living God. You want a healing shrine? Then go where the glory of God is enshrined. And from him flows this fount of healing waters. This is why Protestants are dubious of pilgrimage cures. It has nothing to do with being suspicious about God's power. It has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is the enshrined glory of God. And so I want to make three points here this morning. They're on the back inside page. The healing, the healed man, and Sabbath and blasphemy. So first, the healing. Right, The man has been there for 38 years. He's been afflicted. So it's a chronic condition. And it's caused a great deal of suffering, obviously. And Jesus sees this man. And he either knows or he learns that he's been in the condition for a very long time. And he asks him, do you want to get well? I mean, that seems like a bit of a strange question, don't you think? I've been chronically ill for 38 years, Lord. Of course I want to get well. This is not, though, it's not a challenge to see if the man has enough faith. As if Jesus was saying something like this, do you really, really, really want to get well? Do you have the faith to be healed? All the question is doing is, is just Jesus drawing the man out and really making a sort of indirect offer to heal him. You'll notice the man exercises no faith in the text. He gets healed anyway. All he does simply here is he just tells Jesus' woe. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else gets down in ahead of me. Right, this man believes the story that I mentioned earlier. He believes an angel stirs up the water, and if he could only get into the water faster, he'd be healed. It's a terribly sad belief when you think about it. Right, Jesus does not help him into the pool. This is a spoiler alert. He takes sovereign initiative here. Notice what he does. He chooses this man and only this man. Notice this. Jesus leaves everybody else at the pool in their condition. He walks up to a pool full of afflicted people. He picks this guy out. Which means that the miracle, while of course, of course, it's an act of compassion for this particular man, but it clearly has some deeper purpose in mind, which we'll see in a moment. Right? If it was just about healing power, Jesus could have healed everybody at the pool. 
And so, Jesus exercises his authority here, sort of like he's the creator. He ignores the pool and its legend, right? After the man tells him the story, Jesus simply speaks to the man. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. It's his word. The same word which sovereignly regenerates us, causes us to be born again. Right? The same word which will raise the dead on the last day gives a sign of that resurrection wholeness in the healing of this sick man. These miracles then, they're signs of the kingdom. They're not signs of a standalone, regularly scheduled faith healing ministry to be at the Ulster County Performing Arts Center next Thursday night. That's not how they function in the Gospels. And this accounts, at least in part, for why Jesus heals one and only one, and not the others. And the man is cured. He picks up his mat, and he walks. We learn something important about what's going on here in the next phrase. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Talk about burying the lead, John. I mean, John delays this crucial piece of information until he's done narrating the miracle. So Jesus chooses this man on this day, the Sabbath. Why does he do that? Because Jesus wants to provoke a confrontation. I mean, the man has been ill for 38 years. Jesus could have healed him the day before the Sabbath or the day after the Sabbath. He also knows that the religious authorities are sensitive about this Sabbath thing. So he could have just deferred to their sensibilities and said, you know what, I'll heal you tomorrow. No. He's trying to provoke a confrontation. And that brings me to the second point, the actual healed man himself. And here I want to go quickly because I don't want to dwell on this man himself. The Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. That's an amazing sentiment. I mean, religion and religious practice, unfortunately, it's unfortunate, but it regularly produces this type of human being. It's, it's almost impossible to overstate how hideous and how distorted and utterly vile this response of the religious leaders is. I mean, now, it's important to see this about these guys. They're the conservatives of their day. I think I've mentioned this before. Like, everybody in this room, if you were a first century Jew, you'd be in the party of the Pharisees. The Sadducees are liberals. They don't even believe in the the resurrection. The Sadducees are capitulators to the Roman overlords. The Pharisees resist the Roman overlords. The Sadducees are compromisers with Greco-Roman culture. The Pharisees oppose the infiltration of Greco-Roman culture into Judaism. The Pharisees are the guys who are upholding Torah study. They don't go around with horns 
They're just conservative religious people. Like if we don't realize that the ground we are standing on is ground which can create a monster out of us, then we're not alive and awake. Like we believe God is on our side. That God talks to us. That we talk back to God. That we have his word and we have the truth. And I would say, rightly so. But understand, as Chesterton put it, those beliefs can break all the Easter eggs in Europe if you hold them wrongly. They can turn you into something very inhuman. And there's a real logic in the response of these guys. Here's the logic. God's Sabbath is more important than human well-being. And this Jesus man could have healed the guy yesterday. He could have healed the guy tomorrow. I mean, you don't think there's people in our congregations that wouldn't think like this? He's been sick for 38 years. Heal him on Thursday. I mean, these guys, they're not making this up. But you know what happens? People can't see the forest for the trees over a period of time. Somehow, this embrace of God's law leads them to be blind to human well-being. And it's all the more hideous and distorted just because it masquerades as Torah-keeping piety, as sound theology. And and in this text, it's as if Jesus chose the man with a nearly lifelong affliction, knowing that the healing would provoke a response like this. Surely he knows what's going to happen. And thus, it's going to kind of serve to expose the depths of the peevishness and the petty rule-keeping and the completely disproportioned sense of what's important in the heart of these really nice religious leaders. The older I get, the more I think only two things are really important for us to get right, broadly speaking, in our conception of God and his calling on us in our, in our lives. And they are basically order and proportion. If you're a friend of mine, you've heard me say this hundreds of times. Get the, get the order of things right. God His triune being, creation, the call of Israel, Christ, redemption, the sacraments, the church, you know, resurrection and judgment. Get things in the right order and keep the proportion right. Big things should be really big. Medium things should be medium. Small things should be small. Like the problem is all the time Christians have something which is 46th and they're treating it as if it's first. They treat every single conviction they have like a step function. Boom, they're all, they're all 100% important. So the things are out of order and the proportion is wrong. That's largely the problem with the Pharisees. It's not that they stood for anything wrong in principle. It's that the order and proportion is wrong. You have a man healed from a 38-year-long ordeal of suffering and humiliation. He's walking before their eyes and they have an utter lack of human solidarity. They're incapable of rejoicing with those who rejoice. They're incapable of seeing that the law is about the hesed, or the covenant mercy of God. That that the God who they worship in the law desires mercy and not sacrifice. That's why Jesus will say to these very people later on in John 5, you study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
but you don't see that they talk about me. It's possible to have your nose shoved in the Bible for your whole life and get the big picture badly out of order. Just have the whole thing sort of distorted. That's what's going on here. And, and this is not a facet or a feature of Pharisaism. It's a problem in our circles, right? Because we're these kinds of people. We're, you know, conservative, Bible-believing, serious Christian people. This is the ground that can produce this kind of thing. So they say, here's the guy, you see how they say, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I mean, there's an I you didn't dot and a T you didn't cross. They see, all they see is a code violation. You know what they don't see? An avalanche of mercy. There's an avalanche of sovereign mercy in front of their eyes, and they're like, ah, don't do that. And so they say with papal certainty, the law forbids you to carry your mat. In fact, it doesn't. This is fake theological news. It doesn't. There are statements in the Old Testament about not carrying burdens on the Sabbath. But they clearly mean doing so in the course of your normal commerce, your normal business life. The Sabbath prohibits working in one's ordinary vocation. But that's not enough for certain kinds of people, right? It's not specific enough. I mean, don't we need to define what is and what is not work? I mean, shouldn't we have some sort of a document that... I mean, the people need guidance. You can't just say, keep the fourth commandment. There's going to be a lot of specific issues, and the people are going to need specific guidance. They're going to need application. I mean, one can understand that this is not wholly illegitimate, right? There's a real logic to this position. In some sense, it's unavoidable. It can certainly spring, you know, at least at the beginning from very sincere motivation. But the human person being what we are, it easily, it easily gets out of control. And we end up trampling on the liberty of people with our human regulations. There's a kind of sufficiency of scripture issue at stake with the Pharisees. Right? They believe in the text of the Torah, plus all the practical suggestions they have about implementing the text of the Torah. By the way, that's not different than a lot of evangelicals. Not that different, really. In this case, the Jews had defined, get this, no less than 39 categories of work. 39. And the carrying of a mat from one dwelling to another was covered by category number 39. So it turns out that the Torah does not forbid carrying your mat on the Sabbath, but their practical applications of the Torah do forbid carrying a mat. Preachers have this danger. The danger is this. When you give your practical applications, you're going beyond the text of Scripture. 
This is all this is to them. It's just a bunch of practical applications on how to understand what is work and what is not work. Turns out, the practical applications move beyond the text. So that's the only place this is forbidden, in their customs and in their rules. And so they are falsely accusing this man of violating the Sabbath. And so the man replies to them. He says, the man who made me well said, said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Now this now shifts the focus to Jesus. So they ask, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Notice this. Certainly John wants you to see this. The healed man said, the man who made me well said this. The leaders, they reply, they skip the who made me well part. They skip the gospel. They just want to know about who told you to pick it up and walk. The man who made me well said said this to me. Who told you to pick it up and walk? It's an astonishing thing. They've got the law part down. They missed the gospel part. So these are observant people, right? They're investigators. They seem unable to celebrate with this man, which is the saddest part of it, with some sort of relish or abandon. The man doesn't know who healed him because Jesus, who shuns publicity, especially when he's in and around Jerusalem in the early part of his ministry, slips away into the crowd. Jesus is pretty sure the miracle is going to do do its work. It's almost like, I'm going to slip away and see what happens when I heal this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus finds the guy in the temple and says, I see you're well. Stop sinning, lest something worse befall you. I mean, this could mean that his original condition was related to his own sin, but it's present tense. Stop sinning. In other words, the man appears unreconciled to God even after the healing. Jesus' remark means something like repent or you're going to face the final judgment. But at least at this point, the man knows who healed him. And this character is hard to figure out, this healed man. There are are commentators who really don't like him. But uh, Because he goes and tells the leaders it was Jesus who made him well. Now, he knows they're not interested in this. It's almost like he's informing, but we can't judge the guy's motivations. So that's the healed man. And he informs on Jesus. And that leads to the last point, really where the action is in the text on the Sabbath and blasphemy. Verse 16 says, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Notice the plural. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Apparently, Jesus has a habit of doing these things on the Sabbath. You know how many healings are recorded on the Sabbath in the Gospels? Seven. Seven. So now Jesus is in the cross here. Hairs. Verse 17, he's defending himself. He says to them, now notice, Jesus could have argued that their interpretation of the law is wrong. That's what I just did. He could have done that. But he's doing something much more provocative and important. He's going straight for the jugular on the Sabbath question. He says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. You talk about cutting through the fog. Behind this statement of Jesus, 
There are some contemporary issues which exercised the rabbis of the day. And Jesus displays, by putting his defense this way, he displays an awareness of these questions. So God rested. He entered his Sabbath rest on the seventh day of creation. And that rest continues. It's ongoing. You're called to enter God's Sabbath rest. We saw that in Hebrews 4, the New Testament lesson. Okay, so God's enjoying his Sabbath rest, and he has been since the seventh day of creation. But it's also clear that God cares for, and he upholds the world. So God is active and working. So here's the rabbinical dilemma. Does God keep his own laws? I mean, does God keep his own laws or not? How can he keep the Sabbath rest when he is, in fact, continuing to work and uphold the world. If this question has never exercised you, it's because you're not a rabbi. But it exercised the rabbis. And there's a famous story uh, about four rabbis who go to Rome. It's not the beginning of a joke. There's four rabbis that go to Rome, and it's about this time. It's about, in other words, it's contemporary with John's Gospel. And the four rabbis are challenged on this very point. God must be breaking his own laws because God says we're not to work on the Sabbath, but God has continued to work since the seventh day of creation. And the rabbis defended God with an ingenious argument. Now, this is relevant to our story, I trust, I I assure you. They said that God carried no load. Remember, the man was accused of carrying a load from one dwelling to another. That's the law they said he was breaking. The rabbi said, God carried no load outside the limits of his own dwelling because his dwelling is heaven and earth and he never moves anything from one outside of that. Thus, God was not guilty of unlawfully working on the Sabbath. In other words, all the work God does is just housekeeping. It's inside his own house. Jesus surely has these issues in view here. That's why he says, my father is always at work to this very day. He knows this discussion. They would agree. God works continuously to this very day. And he does so without violating the Sabbath. God rests. God works in harmony. The problem lies with the, my father. My exclusively unique father is at work. Now the Jews might sometimes call God our father in their corporate worship. But they, uh, they hear here, and they rightly hear a very radical claim from Jesus, my father. My father is at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, you have an issue which is joined. You have a clear claim that your works don't violate the Sabbath, even as God's works don't violate the Sabbath. As usual, Jesus has said the most offensive thing he could say in 12 words. It's a claim to be the creator Lord of the Sabbath. To be one with the Father God of Israel. It's a claim to be the possessor of the entire universe. It's a claim that God's works are your works and your works are God's works. It's an astounding claim and you can understand why these guys these religious leaders would be skeptical of it. 
He's just a carpenter. So it's a statement. Jesus says that what I'm doing in my redemptive work here is not some sort of permitted exception that I have to go apply to you to get to work on the Sabbath. This is a glorious fulfillment of the purpose of the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath points to the coming eternal Sabbath, to the rest to come, to the shalom and the peace and the wholeness of the creation, to the resurrection, and thus healing a man on the Sabbath is a shining forth of the inner glory of the Sabbath. It's a pointer to the glory which is to come. This is completely lost on the Jewish leaders who had their noses in the Torah. And so... Verse 18 says they tried to kill him. There's a logic to this too, right? This is just a blasphemous claim. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the text says. They're wrong about that. He wasn't. But he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. They're right about that. He was. What they don't grasp is the connection between the two things. It's precisely because he is God that he and his father are working, that he is not violating the Sabbath. So, what is the text about? Well, it's not really first and foremost about the healing. The text is about the person of Christ. The person of Christ. Who is he? This is, of course, a big issue in John's Gospel. He's one with and yet distinct from the Father. He's undiminished God. God is uniquely his father. And Jesus, because in his being, he is one with the father, that means in his works, he's one with the father. Right? This is the, the central importance of those words, those phrases in the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the father. Because he's one in being with the Father, his works are the Father's works, the Father's works are his works. And in this, beloved, lies our salvation. The Father is working in and with and through the Divine Son for your healing, for your restoration, for the full enjoyment of Sabbath rest for you. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And here we have a healing which is the pledge of the restoration of creation. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Embedded in that claim is the reason Jesus was executed. And that execution, ironically, will bring the creation to its Sabbath rest. Because the executed one will be raised. Because he's one with the father, it's impossible for death to hold him. And in the resurrection... He and his Father will bring you and the whole creation to Sabbath glory. Amen. Amen.